Welcome to episode 25 of OT Conversations That Matter, the podcast. My name is Justine Jecker, and I will be hosting today's conversation with occupational therapists Diana Fong Lee and Heather Gillespie to continue the discussion on occupational therapist assistant roles in our profession. To reiterate from the first OTA podcast episode, OTA titles do vary between provinces and territories. In Canada, some of the following titles are used. Rehabilitation assistant or rehabilitation therapy assistant, support personnel, therapy assistant, and OTA. The Association of Canadian Occupational Therapy Regulatory Organizations, also known as ACATRO, has a position statement to assist therapists across the country with understanding the use and supervision of OTAs regardless of provincial differences in the management of services. In simple language, the role of the OTA is to carry out intervention plans that are assigned by an occupational therapist. The focus on this role was captured by both Diana and Heather, who co-edited the special issue of OT Now in 2015, focusing on occupational therapist and occupational therapist assistant collaboration. Additionally, this duo contributed to the 2019 OTA-PTA Vision Project, which had recommendations range from making the role of OTAs more explicit in Canada to considering certification and regulation. Diana Fong Lee is currently an interim chair for the School of Health and Life Sciences and has been a full-time faculty member teaching and coordinating the Occupational Therapist Assistant and Physiotherapist Assistant Program for the past 25 years at Conestoga College in Kitchener, Ontario. She has worked closely with CAOT and educators across Canada to support intra-professional collaboration between OTs and OTAs, and to build awareness of the role of OTAs to enhance access to occupational therapy services. Heather Gillespie has been an occupational therapist for 46 years in both Saskatchewan and British Columbia, and has worked alongside OTAs for most of her career. She has taught in the 10-month OTA-PTA certificate program in Saskatchewan in, between 1998 and 2001, and has been an instructor in the OTA-PTA online delivery program at Medicine Hat College in Alberta for 14 years. Throughout her career, Heather has advocated on behalf of OTAs having conducted numerous workshops across Canada. Increasing occupational therapists' involvement and effective collaboration with OTAs to achieve better client outcomes has become Heather's passion. Welcome to you both to part two of the OTA discussion, looking at the role and future direction of how OTAs are shaping the profession. Nice to be here. Thank you. Now, in the first OTA episode, we began to explore the role of the OTA. And given both of your extensive background in OTA education, I was hoping you could begin commenting on how the education programs have changed over the years. So perhaps we'll start with you, Heather. Okay. Um, yes. Uh, until about the early 1990s, um, 
the education was mainly was on the job training and um, that had been going on for many, many years. And um, then uh, formal training uh, started in the early 1990s and, and that was kind of based on, um, or one of the reasons that they started formal education was based on a study done by uh, Hagler and colleagues at the University of Alberta. And uh, they looked at the training and use of support personnel, which is the title that was used back in the day. And uh, in their publication of their study um, in 1993, they stated that future support personnel should receive formal education and practical experience prior to assuming their responsibilities. And, and I think that was kind of the kickoff to, to formal education. So the 10 month certificate programs uh, were started in the early 1990s and then evolved into the two year diploma programs, which we have now. And so for you, Heather, you've kind of grown with the education because of your timeline when you started. So you've really seen kind of the early like training on the job to becoming a formal diploma program and, and what it is today. And would you say there's been much change then from, uh, you know, the time of its inception of becoming a program, a diploma program to today? Has there been a lot of change in the last couple of decades? Um. I think there is in the material that's being covered, um, where the uh, the practicums that are happening. So I, I mean, I think it definitely is keeping up with what's happening in uh, in occupational therapy in Canada. And Diana probably has comments about that as well. I would agree with you, Heather. I think yeah. I think what excites me about this is how well supported programs are right right across the country. I mean, we're not just chalk and talk programs, mm -hmm. right? Um, they're robust, they're innovative. Um, oh, some programs are so heavily involved with simulation learning, so they can create real healthcare environments. We can use standardized participants, and when you couple that together, you know, you get some real effective and rich learning experiences. So we don't just talk about someone who's, you know, got to return home, you know, post hip surgery. You know, here's the toilet. Let's practice getting this standardized participant who was hired, you know, to have movement restrictions. So we get students to go right through that. So I think that's been really exciting to see how well supported we are. And I think also the curriculum has been heavily shaped by stakeholders like um, our accreditation standards. So maybe I can pass that back to you, Heather. Mm -hmm. Yes, the um, voluntary accreditation uh, was initiated in 2012 with a pilot study. And um, there, uh, I, I think the last time I checked, I think there's about 24 programs in Canada that are accredited. And um, and I think that has, uh, that has bumped up the um, requirements in the programs a little bit and and whether they're accredited or not uh they're you know sort of keeping up with the pace uh within the country so i think mm -hmm. that has that has been good as well now heather i'm curious or diana so has it from the get-go been ota pta education from the very beginning or is that something how has that duo piece evolved in the education system over time Diane, I'll let you maybe answer that. It's a great question because historically it was, I think, 
it was primarily very PTA focused, right? Because back in the day, um, we were responding to the workforce needs. But what has happened slowly is that the majority of programs are now dual trained. So you get both. You are, uh, you graduate from a two year four semester program um, with occupational therapy assistant competencies and physiotherapy assistant competencies. And it's great, like from a marketing point of view, we tell our students that, we tell prospective candidates, two for the price of one. You know, you're not just one, you are both. And I think that makes sense, right? Because when you think about it, what do our employers need, right? They need both. Uh, mm -hmm. So in the case of a maternity leave or when you have any sort of, um, you know, admittance differences in terms of numbers, you can pull on someone who's dual trained. You know, someone might be doing OTA in the morning with ADL, but they might be doing their PTA or work in PTA in the afternoon to meet the needs you know, of the facility. So it's it's exciting. It's it's great that more and more programs have decided and are following to make it a joint program. And on that note, would you say then, and maybe I'll point this to Heather, but would you say that um, this lends to specific areas of practice when you have the dual training? Because at CAOT, we currently identify uh, 60 areas of practice and we often say these are not in stone, you know, arguably there could be many more or many less, depending how you look at it. But would you say with the dual training that it's more likely OTAs would be in a physical setting, for example, than in um, a setting that maybe has more of a mental health focus? Um, I, I don't know if I would say that necessarily. I mean, assistants can work in any area of occupational therapy whether it's um, physical health, mental health, um, community, private clinics, whatever the setting is. And um, they, they have the abilities to, to do that. And the only, um, I mean, basically the only treatments that they're not, uh, they can't be assigned is the protected, protected or restricted activities if they occur in certain provinces. So that's really the only limitation and it's, um, and, and the assignment of the task to the assistants is based on the therapist's, uh, uh, the, the risk of um, harm to the client or the, you know, the type of intervention or whatever. So they certainly can work in any areas and they can work just in occupational therapy settings. They can work in rehabilitation settings. Um, there really isn't any, any limitation. Diana, I know that you have a background in the mental health piece for OTA, and I, I find this one particularly interesting, having a mental health background myself, and I did not um, have access to OTAs when I was practicing in Thunder Bay for 10 years, although there are rehabilitation assistants that identify and graduate from programs uh, that service the North. Um, but that is something I want to dive into a little bit more, because we, we know having just come off our CUT conference and a focus on uh, health human resources, specifically in mental health, that this is a huge area of need across the country. Can you explain a little bit more about maybe specifically how what that training education looks like for OTAs in mental health? Oh, that's a great question. 
um, as a program coordinator for, you know, uh, my program, I've had the opportunity to work with a facility locally and we pulled together a job description specifically for a designated mental health service. Um, I think what I'd like to say is, you know, it might not be common, but there's definitely a huge role for OTAs um, on, on a or in a designated service or in a hospital setting or some sort of treatment facility specifically for mental health. Um, OTAs can be involved in teaching life skills. Like they can be involved in helping someone literally learn how to take a bus, get on a bus. They can be involved in grocery shopping. So they'll do some one-on-one. -on -one. They'll go right out to, you know, grocery store and, and support, you know, an individual. Um, they can co-facilitate, run cooking groups or have one-on-one -on -one cooking sessions. But basically on the job, we would expect that a graduate can work with an OT and a treatment team so they can generate strategies and activities to build budgeting skills, meal planning, or whatever identified goals. Um, but I also think that we need to recognize that mental health needs, like they're not restricted to designated services or treatment facilities, right? So like you said, even with the conference, you know, the we're, we're seeing more issues of mental health now um, you know, regardless of the environment, we all recognize that mental health needs are not restricted to a designated service or treatment facility. So, you know, we have an important job and a role in as educators. So in the program, we want to make sure that our graduates, they're ready for any opportunities. Um, they have to have the right background training. Um, they have to be able to know how to ask hard questions. So at uh, my facility or institution, we build in some heavy simulation learning experiences. So we will create scenarios such as, let's say, an OTA is working with a client or patient, um, you know, in a cooking group, you know, and we create dialogue that suggests the OTA needs to listen carefully. Something's going on. The OTA needs to ask a hard question sometimes and build in and integrate some of those theory skills, those micro skills where they listen, they reflect. They may need to restate and may have to ask someone, I am concerned. Are you having thoughts of suicide? They have to know that this conversation is important to report back to the OT. So I really appreciate you asking this, um, Justine, because we are in the programs very committed, um, very, very um, determined to make sure our grads have the right training. I mean, you know, you can be working with someone and on a, you know, maybe a knee injury. What if, you know, there's a manic episode, right? So, yeah, really important to think about the fact that it's, you know, we need to prepare students cross facilities, cross different environments and opportunities. Absolutely. And it brings me to another thought. So basically the OTA in terms of the, the, there's two major components that I've come to understand. So it's the comfort level of the occupational therapist in terms of assigning, you know, the set intervention to the OTA, as well as the experience and competence and expertise of the OTA to take on different tasks. And I think in mental health, for example, that could be, that could be maybe I, that might take more time to figure out. Um, and, and I want to talk a little bit about the service, uh, su the supervision models that um, exist with OTAs. And there's kind of three big ones. So there's that idea of direct 
uh, supervision where the OTA is alongside you and you can imagine them in a mental health setting, they could be co-leading a group with you on life skills or a cooking group. Uh, there's the indirect model, which, you know, they could be in the same facility, but you're not necessarily on the same unit as the OT and the OTA is um, independent carrying out the intervention. And then there's also the remote model where the OT is not on site, not usually anywhere close to the OTA where the OTA is carrying out um, the intervention. I'm just wondering if you'd want to share a few examples of and maybe if you want to go outside of mental health, that's perfectly okay. But I was just thinking because mental health is one of the ones that's big right now, but wherever you'd like to go. So maybe Heather, we'll start with you. Okay. Um, and the, the area that I will start with uh, based on my um, fairly recent clinical experience was in home care in, uh, in, in a city and uh, a fairly big city. Um, so I would be seeing a client in one part of the city and the assistant would be seeing a client in another part of the city. And um, when I was determining whether I would assign this task to uh, the particular assistant that I was working with, um, one of the factors was, can they see this client if I'm not working on a particular day, if either I'm on a vacation or I'm calling in sick or something like that. And it all is related to the level of risk of um, to the client of assigning that task. So that would be something that I would include in my supervision plan that the assistant can only see this client on days that I'm working or the assistant can see the client um, on days that I'm not working. And if, if an issue comes up, this is the person that they would contact if they would need uh, need some assistance, some help. Um, and and that worked really, really well because we're able to see so many more clients um, throughout uh, throughout the day and and everybody is the, all the clients are getting the treatment that they uh, that they deserve to get. And I think another example of the remote supervision, and i I haven't had personal experience in this, but um, assistants that are working in um, really rural areas and particularly um, I think up in the territories and they the occupational therapists that are supervising them are in different locations uh, different geographical locations so that type of of remote supervision um, definitely occurs and again uh, from my understanding it works very well so um, it but but the bottom line is and the therapists need to understand this that the type of supervision is going to be related on the risk of that assignment to the client and and that's how that is is determined so that's very helpful heather yes that's very helpful I also, just one more comment that i have i have had a few situations not too many but where i totally intended to assign to an assistant a particular task and based on my assessment with the client or something that came up, I said, no, this is something I need to do myself. This is too risky. And, you know, that's okay to do that. So it's really, every situation is different. Every situation needs to be um, assessed. Whether exactly. It's appropriate. So a constant yeah. evaluation. And that makes sense, right? Because I mean, as therapy is changing, as circumstances are changing, it's important to check in and say, does this plan still make sense? Yeah, Diana, how about, how about for you? How, how have you experienced the different service delivery models? I think I'm 
I would say the key thing again, it really just reinforcing what Heather said is it's that supervision plan. Um, but I do like that you talked a bit about the remote um, because that's actually growing when you think about it. Um, and, and COVID actually sparked that on. So we learned and we realized that our assistants as well will need training and be involved in working remotely with clients, in fact, or patients, in fact, right? So, you know, they they may actually be, you know, on a follow-up Zoom call where someone calls in and says, hey, you know, I really forgot how I'm supposed to, you know, you know, put the brakes on or, you know, you know, I, I can't figure out, you know, how to attach this, you know, so it could be equipment related or whatever. Um, but but I, I think that, you know, Heather, you've touched on something that's really important is that as we move forward, um, you know, the supervision plan will be remote, but but so is intervention, right? So we're going to have to really trust. We're going to have to really look at trusting our assistance, you know, and making sure that, you know, when, when we assign something, we're assigning them something that we've seen them do or we know that they're capable of doing or that we know what we're doing. Absolutely. And it brings me to another thought around, um, so the evolution of intra-professional collaboration. Uh, we, uh, so in talking to Deborah Cooper on the first uh, part of the OTA podcast, uh, the first series was that she said, you know, OTAs need to start taking more OTAs on placement. Um, that this would be uh, a really great way to move the dial on interprofessional collaboration. I'm wondering if you can both speak a little bit about, you know, how have you seen that evolve, knowing that we have, um, com in comparison, only 14 university programs for OTs. And I think you just mentioned, uh, Diana, that there's 24 accredited, or sorry, Heather, 24 accredited programs approximately across Canada and dozens more programs that um, still um, graduate OTAs that aren't, aren't necessarily accredited. How how do we make that dynamic work? I, I'm happy to uh, to start with that. Um, I I think I'm just going to go back when I when I started working <laughs> a long time ago, and and I was I was told in a very professional way that one of my responsibilities was to take, and at the time, mm -hmm. um, it would have been occupational therapy students after I'd had a couple of years work experience, that I would be expected to take students on placement at least once a year. And I said, okay, and, and I've, I have done that and, and it's been a wonderful experience. And I, I think that does need to be, um, and, and it's it's not something that we can make everybody has to do this, but it definitely needs to be encouraged more that that is the responsibility of therapists to um, supervise both therapy students and therapist assistant students on on placement. And it's a great learning experience and it um, it just builds our our profession. And um, so, I think that is is one thing that we can do a little bit more of is is really encouraging um, therapists to take students on placement. And something that we've talked about for for many years um, is is collaborative placements with an OT student and an OTA student on the same placement, which takes a lot of work. It's absolutely the supervising therapist is it's 
puts a lot on them, but the results are phenomenal. And um, I've had some personal experience with that as well. And, and uh, that's something I think we should encourage a little bit more as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you think of, when I think back to being a student, the role that field work played for me is huge, right? It helped you to understand and shape your view towards your future career. Um, I, I, I also want to add that I think there, there's a bit of a myth. So it's almost like OTs may not realize they can and should supervise OTA students. It doesn't have to be an OTA supervising an OTA student. That's a great point. And, and it will bring me to another place. So we've been talking a lot about the clinical environment. What about non-clinical or virtual opportunities for OTAs on placement? What does that look like? Not sure what. I mean, so looking at the role of the OT, for example, in telehealth right now, we have OTs across the country who, in the wake of COVID, have switched to, towards virtual and telehealth care. So predominantly focused, um, you know, they can plan their day through their computer and not necessarily meeting with clients one to one. Is there is the OTA, um, have they been, and that's still clinical in nature, but there are non-clinical roles as well. Co consultation, for example, uh, where OTs, um, you know, aren't necessarily working with patients. So I'm just curious about the OTA role. If they're not, you know, necessarily face-to-face -face with a client, um, do, you know, it, it, is it happening, I guess is the question? Well, we want to see it happen. Like I would, I, you know, we've had conversations, you know, at many of our educator meetings about role emerging placements, right? Because we're not always going to get placements right in facilities. So, you know, Justine, we'd want to, we'd want to grow that and look at how we can use, you know, our remote technology to create some learning experiences that will meet some of the competencies. So we've had to be creative and explore placements in non-traditional settings or role emerging placements. We've assigned students to be lab assistants in education programs to achieve clinical fieldwork hours. Another opportunity for student fieldwork hours has been to place students with equipment vendors or other community agencies who may not offer traditional OT services, but the work an OTA can do will support a role emerging placement. And are those examples of role emerging that you're mentioning right now, Diana? Some ideas around, okay, I was gonna yeah. ask you, what might role emerging entail? Cause I I'm, I'm, was curious if it was the same idea of occupational therapists thinking of role emerging or if it might be a little bit different for OTA. I think it's similar. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, and I think also um, it can be, they can have a placement at a facility that doesn't have occupational therapy on site uh, and their supervisor on site can be um, yeah, anybody, <laughs> but they have to have an off-site occupational therapy supervisor and this is for accreditation uh, standards. Um, and they can, all, they can build the role of occupational therapy within that facility in the hopes that they will then hire an occupational therapist and an OTA uh, to provide occupational therapy to those um, clients or residents or wherever the, the facility is. So that um, that is something that has 
that has happened and and it's uh it does meet accreditation standards as long as it's only one placement with throughout their uh, their education but yeah i think uh, as diana says i think there's lots of uh potential for um for role emerging placements for um sort of the virtual experiences and that and uh, i think we'll be moving forward in that direction that's great to hear, Heather and Diana. It, it is exciting to see the evolution happen. And um, another recent event, so at conference, you were able to deliver a pre-conference workshop, Heather, I believe, at the CAOT conference. And I, I did hear some feedback from different attendees that they really felt the OTA presence was changing. Like they felt that there was more talk, more engagement, and more integration of even just OTA throughout conference. How was your experience? I would agree with that. I was very pleased that uh, that there was um, more discussions about involving assistance in, in occupational therapy practice. And um, and yes, in the workshop, some some really interesting questions and comments. And I, I the bottom line, uh, and this is what um, I heard a lot, is that one of the first things that needs to happen is that therapists need to be educated more on involving assistance in practice and build their confidence in yes. the confidence of assistance and um, having them learn more in their university master's education about potentially working with assistance. And as I mentioned earlier, the interprofessional um, placements with both OT and OTA students. And, um, and the other, uh, I guess, challenge I would bring up that did come up a, a few times um, in the conference is the managers of uh, therapy departments, in particular the occupational therapy and in, in some of the, um, and, and I, I would think probably like hospital settings, do not have the understanding about uh, about assistance and the role, and that needs to change as well. We we need to do a lot more kind of broad education in that regard. But it was so exciting to hear assistance being discussed more at this conference than it happened in in previous conferences. So it was excellent. That's wonderful. <laughs> and in your experience, Diana, was it about the same? Oh yeah, I, I I think that um, what I've heard, you know, is that OTAs really appreciate being pulled in to the conversation, right? Being involved, and so um, right from the ground up, I think that's the neat thing. Um, and and to, I'm going to put in a plug for COT. I mean, a lot of um, the effort is coming from the association, you know, just creating more sessions. Um, and even though it's been a while, Heather and I thoroughly enjoyed putting together that special issue. I, I, I felt for me it was it was a starter, too, because people came together across Canada um, wanting very much to share what they're doing, how they're building collaborative relationships. Right. And then from there, you, you know, you've started, you know, just your special interest group and now having a chair for OTA like it's yeah, it's it's pretty exciting and definitely mm -hmm. progress. Yeah, it does feel slow when you're kind of in the thick of it, but I, I can also agree, even just knowing that the 2018 profile for OTA is under review and looking to change. And um, it's interesting because we've been getting recent feedback on that profile. Like you guys need to update this uh, from people who aren't involved in the conversation. So that's actually really reassuring 
Um, I do feel this global sense in the OT community of this awareness that's expanding. And, um, and I think it's helpful with our Southern counterparts in the United States and seeing how strong the OTA role is there. It really is starting to spill over. And uh, we have a lot of OTAs from the South reach out to our practice team asking, you know, what's it like in Canada? And can I come work there? And um, you know, we tell them, well, yes, you can, and you can apply for jobs directly, which is exciting. Um, we are getting to that time in the podcast today. It always goes by so fast. But if to give you both an opportunity to um, let our viewers and listeners walk away with something, what is it that each of us can be doing to really expand and build on the story of intra-professional collaboration? And... Um, you can specify if, if you want to talk to academics or clinicians or however you'd like to message this, but you know, what can we all be doing to move the dial? Oh my gosh. I can't believe we're coming to an end. <laughs> but one of the parting statements for me would be, I was thinking about this and I was thinking, you know, building capacity for OT, like it starts with building relationships, right? So if we can look at, you know, trusting and respecting the role and value that OTAs bring to the care team. I mean, I think that's the biggest priority I have is that OT and OTA partnerships because strengthening that partnership really will open up access to OT. So that's one of the things I was thinking about. Mm -hmm. And I th and for me, um, and again, because of how I was mentored when I started my career and I didn't know how to work with the on-the-job trained and aides they were called at the time and my colleagues mentored me so well that I became proficient at that 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 is something that needs to happen in every workplace is new um, new therapists therapists who haven't worked with assistants before that hopefully there is a, a therapist who has worked with assistants before and can mentor them and walk them through the process because it's not like it is a, it can be a complicated process but it is so effective in providing the client care that we need to provide as occupational therapists that that needs to happen more and um and just help each other to become more proficient at involving assistance in uh in treatments and in our profession. And um, that's that's something that I, I would like to see happen on a more regular basis. In, Absolutely. In a, yeah. And, and also, you know, professional development activities for both assistants, as well as for, for OTs in working with assistants, I think would be very beneficial to, to bring that in, in more. That's huge, Heather, mm -hmm. right? is, is um, they've been screaming. People have been screaming for continuing education opportunities. So what can we do? You know, what kind of micro-credentials or what kind of, um, you know, grad certificates might appeal and be helpful for our OTAs? Mm -hmm. And Heather, I'm really glad you mentioned mentorship. Uh, when we redesigned Find an OT Mentor, uh, it was different than find an OT. So find an OT stands for find an occupational therapist. But in our thinking of find an OT mentor, 
OT stands for Occupational Therapy Mentor because it is inclusive of OTAs and it is an opportunity. Um, it's a starting point. The program is, is barely seven months old and still needs to be evaluated, but it is a great place to start reaching out and asking questions. I think what these two podcasts have done is just shed light on the fact that there's a lot that we don't know as occupational therapists, and I think there's been an apprehension. I know when I graduated that I should have known more than I do, right? Like, how do I know nothing about OTAs? This is terrifying. And then when you go on and practice long enough, it's almost like when you you meet someone and you don't get their name the first time and you've talked to them <laughs> 10 times and then you're two, it's like, I can't ask them what their name is by the 10th time. I think that's what's happened with OTAs there's this almost fear uh, to to just start the conversation and say, okay, I've been in practice for 15 years. I'm really sorry, but I don't know. I don't know how we can work together, right? Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about what you do and your knowledge and just having that humility and open communication to connect. And then I think depending on where you are in the country, as we said, there's different titles, there's different programs, um, there's different types of service delivery models. I think each OT can look into what makes sense in where the, where they're at, right? Where can they, even if you might be in a position where you can't take on an OTA yourself at that very moment, you can look to see what's happening around you. And uh, when might that opportunity come up? Because um, even just doing a placement experience, even if there isn't necessarily a job for the OTA where you're working, that's a tremendous learning opportunity for both. Um, and yeah, and we did say after the first podcast, we do need an OTA placement at CAOT. So that's something, you know, that we are going to look into doing because I don't believe that's happened yet. I could be wrong. I, I haven't been proven wrong yet, but I would like us to begin that journey to have OTAs at the association. And that was actually one of my background thoughts when I was thinking, okay, are OTAs in virtual? Because uh, we're, we're very much in virtual land at the association right now. Um, but I just want to really thank both of you because you've added so much to our first podcast discussion, kind of just got us starting to talk about the role you've provided, uh, just a breadth of background knowledge in terms of the evolution, uh, the concept of intra-professional collaboration. I really appreciate talking about the mental health piece because I think that for many OTs, that's going to be an eye-opener after this podcast is, wow, I never imagined we could use OTAs in mental health. Um, and so is there... Would you like to leave your actual contact? What's the best way to get in touch with you for our listeners? Um, for me, it's probably through my um, Medicine Hat College email, hgillespie at mhc.ab.ca. Thank you, Heather. Yeah, same, you know, just uh, using the email through Conestoga College. So um, I think that you'll have that printed underneath our we will, that, we right? will make sure, yes, we'll definitely make sure your emails are included. Um, so thank you both again today, and we look forward to the launch of our OTA webpage uh, prior to the fall when this podcast airs, hopefully at the same time, that would be ideal. Um, but we are also, to any of our listeners, we're, we want to hear from you. Uh, if you want to be on the podcast at any time, you don't have to wait for an OTA podcast to come up. You can be an OTA on any podcast. So it, the door is wide open and we'd love to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you Thanks for this opportunity. Much.